The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining us today are here, Harris Cooperman, who's uh, built quite a name in the uh, FinTwit world uh, and has a lot of great thoughts on what's happening in the energy space and th- how to think about uranium here. But uh, Harris, for those uh, who are not familiar with your background, just talk about who you are, how'd you get involved in markets, and what are you doing now? Sure. Hey, everybody. Uh, I think most of you guys know who I am, but... Um... I've been investing in markets uh, since the late 90s when I should was I was in boarding school and I should have been going to class and instead I'd stay in the dorm and trade stocks. Uh, and I currently run Praetorian Capital. It's a, it's a hedge fund. Uh, it's our fourth year in operation. We have about 180 million of assets. Uh, we've put up some pretty uh, strong numbers, if I, uh, you know, in terms of my worldview. Uh, and even this year, when uh, I think a lot of guys are having a rough year, you know, we're slightly up on the air. So, uh, you know, it's kind of quick background on who I am and what I do. All right. Let's talk about the, uh, the mindset that goes into your portfolio construction. You're managing hedge fund hedge funds for the last decade plus haven't really been all that interesting. You've seen all the data around alpha being essentially negative for kind of the vast majority of different funds. Talk about your process. How do you go about selecting and positioning? So I think one of the reasons that a lot of funds have really suffered is they got too big and they got to the point where they had to choose 100 names in the S&P and they have this mindset that they have to run a book that's like, you know, 150-50, you know, so they're 100 uh, net, but they have these shorts and they usually short the stuff that uh, is going up and they usually long the stuff that isn't. They tend to be in the same names that all their friends are in and you end up with these hedge fund hotel disasters when they miss earnings they just cascade i just think that the whole industry has been bastardized it's become about asset uh, gathering as opposed to making money and it's really not serving anyone except the portfolio managers um in terms of what we do i think we do something very different uh i think of myself in, in really two buckets uh, i'm an inflection investor uh, foremost we look for sectors and themes that are inflecting quote-unquote uh, th- these are sectors usually that are unloved, underappreciated, ignored, not followed, often beaten down because they've really disappointed people for many years. And we're trying to find uh, a catalyst or an event or something that unlocks the value and can put the business on a different trajectory. Um, you know, we're l- usually looking at uh, cyclical businesses, commodity stuff, uh, secular change in industry. We also have a really deep uh, event-driven uh, backdrop to what we do. 
where, um, you know, we, we run a service and I'll talk about it later called Kedem, but we're tracking over 20 million, of, over 20 event-driven strategies. And a lot of those strategies can uh, unlock some sort of inflection. Uh, there's the cap structure stuff like spinoff, privatization, demutualization, uh, you know, uh, buybacks, dividends, all that sort of stuff. But then you have the more interesting ones, which are like CEO change, where, you know, you have a business that was mismanaged and a new guy with fresh eyes comes in and you could have a dramatic uh, inflection in the business. And so, you know, kind of taking it back to your question, we're looking for inflections and we're trying to buy stuff that is mispriced and we're usually buying stuff at single digit multiples on next year's earnings or huge discounts to replacement costs. I find that Wall Street is really good at taking something like Google that grows and just uh, extrapolating the growth forward. And Wall Street's really terrible at taking something that's been pretty terrible for a long time and looking around the corner and believing that things can get better. So on that on that inflection point, there's there's two things get that can have an inflection, right? One is the the macro environment, and then you know, two is the idiosyncratic something specific to the company. It sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're focused more on company specific catalysts as opposed to necessarily taking a, a world worldview on something. I think we do both. Um, you know, I don't usually talk about the individual stocks that are having, you know, a change because the new CEO is coming in or, you know, they've reinvented the product or they changed how they market the product, you know, because they're just not very interesting stories to talk about. I mean, in the end, you know, no one wants to hear about a 3% position I have that I have a unique take on. They probably never even heard of the company because it's a $200 million company and compliance doesn't want me talking about those. Uh, so instead, I usually uh, defer to talking about oil and uranium and housing and all these other trends that are big macro trends where you can look at it top down and then uh, find tons of different ways to play it. But even the, the, the bottom up stuff I do, it all has a macro tailwind. Uh, I'm not going to be going into a, a sector that's hurting and trying to choose you know, a company that's going to outperform because you're just not going to make any money. Yeah, and it's good to have obviously the the macro tailwind because it's a lot easier to to undo mistakes when you have the broader trend in your favor for that that school of fish. But are you based on that? Does it uh, are you looking at portfolio construction more from always having a long bias? Are you doing anything directional to broader beta? I, I'm trying to get into sort of the the mechanics. I think that will relate nicely to sort of where we are this year. So I don't short much. I mean, I'm a hedge fund. I'm allowed to short. I just don't do it much. Um, you know, I don't really think in terms of beta. I just think in terms of how do I construct a portfolio where each position is uh, non-correlated? And if I get uh, an idea wrong, how do I get my money back? And you know, sometimes you really get it wrong and you still get your money back. And how do I get it right and get a five or ten bagger? I don't put anything on the book that's not at least a triple in three years. And really, my cutoff's a five-bagger in three years. Um, you know, I want something that really, if it works, it's going to work. And, you know, I try to do this without taking on financial leverage. It's all operating leverage. And the fact that uh, Wall Street, for better or worse, doesn't really work on valuation. It works on themes. And so you need something that will capture people's imagination in terms of a thematic that they can look at and say, yeah, I get it. You've just put together two good years. I can now extrapolate another decade of, that, you know, those sort of numbers. And then let's discount it back and, you know, wow, this thing's a 10-bagger. You know, that's kind of how I'm thinking of the world. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I've kind of avoided some of the stuff I've avoided just because I never thought Wall Street would get his brain around it. You know, it's something like coal. We made a lot of money in coal early on, but we tossed it early because, you know, the, 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 the easiest money was when it went from uh, almost bankrupt to going to make it. 
And then from there, you know, Wall Street just never was going to put a multiple on it. So we had a lot of multi-baggers, but we didn't stick around because it just wouldn't get the multiple. You know, it's, it's partly just seeing where people will be willing to invest. I mean, multiple expansion is usually what drives uh, stock price. It's not usually driven by earnings. I mean, I guess earnings can expand dramatically, especially if a company is uh, under earning. But there's kind of a, a ceiling to how much a company can earn based on the revenue. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I love that line that Wall Street favors themes, not fundamentals. I mean, I have seen that obviously for a number of years as well as somebody who launches ETFs and works with a company that helps to white label some of this stuff. Now, I named this space... uh, Oil is about to explode, which sounds really, really dramatic. Uh, but that's because you and I were coordinating on the DM side. Um, I've had a lot of people talk about oil the last several months. I just had Stephen Short yesterday talk about oil. Um, I think everyone's largely in agreement that you have a real secular uh, tailwind when it comes to oil because of underinvestment. But I think what's not clear is uh, upside potential. <clears throat> so. I want you to talk about your thesis around the energy space and why a lot more could be coming in terms of oil prices and, of course, why it's so critical to the market. So, you know, I found that when it comes to commodities, you have this weird clustering, like, you know, two standard deviations from the three-month, you know, average volatility of of something. So when oil was at 60, everyone, all the Wall Street analysts had price targets for year-end of between 50 and 70. And then when oil was 80, everyone had price targets between 65 and 85 and then you know, 95. It's kind of funny. And, you know, right now oil's uh, one, uh, 110, let's say, and everyone has a price target between 100 and 125. You know, they just kind of like group themselves around the target. And I think they totally missed the whole point of this. Um, we've had uh, since 2014 a dramatic underinvestment in uh, long cycle energy. And these are projects that take a long time to get online. And then they decay a few percent a year, five, six, seven, ten percent, whatever. But uh, they're all starting to trail off, and there's not been much investment in that. What we have had investment in is short cycle, that's shale. And uh, shale will grow from here again. Uh, I don't think it'll hit a new high, though. Uh, and you have government and ESG that are standing in the way of this. And I think this has all been done to death. I mean, if you follow my Twitter stream, you, you, you know where I stand. But, um, you know, you have, the, you have Biden going around canceling pipelines and drilling permits. And, you know, you have banks that refuse to lend. So these companies have to use internally generated cash flow. And if you look at uh, oil production, the cash flow cycle is kind of funny. You know, it all gets tied up in uh, working capital. It all gets tied up in uh, downhole. It, it takes a long time before you've recovered all your capital from a well. And so it just means that the, the pace of uh, recovery and the pace of production growth is going to be uh, limited to cash flow because the banks won't lend. Or if they will lend, you know, the terms aren't very generous. And, you know, no one wants to ha- have to force to, you know, lock in their uh, future uh, production at 80 bucks down the curve two years or whatever it is. So I just think it's going to come back slow. Meanwhile, 
And I think people really forget this. You know, I spent uh, 10 years of my life living in an emerging market, and I saw the emerging market have an economic crisis that lasted a decade. And, you know, the per capita GDP is probably down more than half since I moved to that country. And oil, product, oil, oil consumption grew every year. And um, I think people forget that there's 6 billion people that want the same standard of living that we have here in the West. And a lot of these people don't have refrigerators or televisions or uh, you know, dishwashers or cars, obviously, or air conditioning. And you know, energy consumption in all its various forms will uh, grow on a per capita basis almost indefinitely for the rest of my lifetime, unless the population of the world shrinks dramatically. And technology won't be able to overcome this. And so, you know, the, you have a couple of core sources of energy, and one of them is going to be oil. And that's the one that really does have the most deficit right now. And uh, that's the one that I think is about to blow out to the upside in a very dramatic way. And you know, people keep thinking, oh, you know, it goes to 125 and it's done, or maybe it goes to 150 like 2008, and then, you know, the global economy collapses and it's at 50 six months later. And I, I think that's just the wrong. Uh, uh, mental model to use. I, I think the more likely outcome is it blows off to some ridiculous number that all of us think is impossible, like call it 500 or something. And, I, and that's not my prediction. That's just a ridiculous number that I don't think is possible, <laughs> but might be possible. And um, then I think it collapses down to some number like 150 to 200. And that's the new level. Because we have this much underinvestment, you have this much growth, and you know, I think demand's going to keep growing one to three million barrels a year. And the supply is going to keep lagging and you're going to keep draining inventory. And when you drain inventory, you have less uh, flexibility to counter these, these price spikes. And you're always one international incident away from a $200 price spike, which is going to force a risk premium into all this stuff. And uh, no, I think it's going to absolutely blow out. I mean, I find it hilarious that uh, a good chunk of the financial community is focused on what the Federal Reserve says next or you know, where interest rates go or you know, Apple's earnings or whatever dumb thing they're focused on. I mean, the only thing people should be focused on is the price of oil and how high it spikes when it spikes. Because if it does get to 500, I mean, all the other Q-sips go to zero. And I think that's really the thing that people should be fixated on here. But, but in order to have that, that, let's call it super spike, that tail, you need some kind of an event. And as you alluded to, right, it's probably going to be more on the geopolitical front. But but arguably, there is a, also a chance it goes the other way in terms of not a spike, obviously, but a collapse if somehow magically we get a ceasefire or something when it comes to Russia, Ukraine, at least for a moment in time. Right. So how do you think about balancing tail risks? Because it seems like there's potentially another negative surprise out there right on the geopolitical front. But we can still have positive surprises that brings oil down. So, I mean. I don't really try to think of this, you know, what happens next week or what's Putin's next move or what she's going to do or, you know, what Biden's going to do. Um, you know, I, I think even if there's a ceasefire in Russia, in, in the end, uh, Russia, Russia is exporting all they can. Uh, I don't think it changes anything. Could oil drop $20 that day? Yeah, sure, whatever. Um, but I don't think it changes anything the supply-demand balances. I mean, for my entire professional career, it's always been uh, demand-side uh, question in terms of oil. And for the first time, uh, it's a supply side question in terms of oil. And that's a very different dynamic than anyone's really dealt with since the 70s in, in terms of uh, what the oil price will be. And so I don't think that what happens in terms of GDP or what happens you know, in consumption, like I don't think that's going to move the needle as much as people think, especially because we've seen every government around the world uh, handing out stimmies. And if you hand out stimmies, uh, consumption... Uh, 
you know, stays constant or goes up. I, I think we're in a new world where if oil's at 200, demand actually increases. Because if the government gives me 50 free gallons a, a month and I don't use for 50, I, I really don't, uh, I'm going to hand that uh, card to one of my friends that might need it. And so, you know, you'll have net consumption increase. And you'll see this in rich countries. You'll see this in poor countries. Everyone's going to hand out stimmies. Uh, and at the same time, they're going to go around whack-a-mole, making it impossible to drill for oil. I mean, they've been talking about excess profits taxes. and They've been talking about carbon uh, taxes. And various countries have already implemented some of these things. And they're going to continue to implement these things because it's popular with voters. But the, the net result is that you don't see much production. And, you know, the, the, the really scary one's the N-word. And uh, I think there's a pretty good chance that they start talking about nationalization. <laughs> you know, at that, at that point, uh, you know, all bets are off. No one's putting a dollar into the ground. And so, um, no, I just don't think there's any supply response. They've taken the law of economics where the price goes up, usually demand declines and supply increases, and they've kind of flipped it. And I don't think people have realized that governments have intervened in the economic uh, cycle and flipped it. And uh, I, I think it's going to take a long time for people to realize just how dramatic that flipping has been. So I, I'm not really focused on, you know, what uh, you know, happens with a ceasefire or what happens each data point. I mean, if we keep dr uh, drawing down the U.S. Uh, 7 to 10 million barrels a week like we have been, I mean, there's going to be a crisis. It's, 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 it's inevitable. And I think you're going to see this, you know, throughout the world. Yeah, and I love that tweet. I shared at the top here that you put out. Um, you and I both share a degree of sarcasm with uh, content, but you know, you're saying China's draining our our SPR. Um, talk about that uh, for a bit, because I think it's um, it's amazing how the response doesn't seem to be mattering, nor is it logical in the context of everybody wanting oil. Sorry, you can explain it again. I mean, the, the no, no, just, just the, the link between China. Why is it, you know that that point you mentioned? Why is China? You know, China's draining our SPR. How is China actually doing that? Explain, explain that that link. Oh, because we have fuckwits running our country. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was looking for. Yeah, let's get fired up, Harris. Come on. I mean, look, uh, if the price of oil goes to five. It's not going to really change my life. I mean, uh, I'm a successful hedge fund manager. I'll just pay more for gas, and I'm long a bunch of oil. Net net is probably a positive. But, uh, well, it's going to be a positive. But in, in terms of you know, the rest of our country, it's going to be pretty terrible for them. Uh, it's going to be a giant tax on the middle class. And, you know, I think it's going to, you know, you ever seen the, the movie There'll Be Blood where, they, you know, I, oh, I drink yeah. your milkshake? Yep. Well, I feel like oil is I drink your milkshake. But it's going to be Walmart and Target and all these other guys where the consumers just don't have any money. I mean, they, they spent all their money to get to Walmart and then they have no money left over to buy anything there. I think that's also where Brent Johnson gets his uh, dollar milkshake theory. I think same uh, <laughs> same part of that. Okay, now now I've had uh, I had Kevin Bambro on several months ago, um, and he's big on uranium and makes a very compelling case that you know if you really want to play the EV super trends, you really want to play uh, oil. You have to think about the the secondary and tertiary beneficiaries, and his argument is that nuclear is really the only way. So I want you to lay out your thesis on the uranium space um, and maybe why it hasn't really <laughs> panned out as well as people hoped. I mean, it's doing okay this year, but let's talk about that for a bit. Sure. I mean, in terms of uranium, uh, I, I look at big macro trends. Uh, after fighting it really for four decades, I think the world's coming around to the conclusion that if you want to have a low carbon intensity baseload power, uh, you know, nuclear is really your only option outside of hydro. And there's only so many rivers you can dam. 
And so as a result, I think the world's going to be forced to uh, pivot to nuclear. And there's a lot of people who call themselves green who haven't come to that realization yet. But a lot of pragmatists have. And I think uh, we've seen that cycle. You know, we've seen in the U.S., we've seen multiple uh, reactors that were supposed to be closed. Same with in Europe that are now getting, uh, uh, you know, a new lease on life. And just because we need the electricity, quite honestly, uh, just pragmatism. You know, you see China and India going crazy building these things. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that demand is going to increase quite dramatically. At the same time, we've had a really epic bear market in uh, uranium. I mean, it's been what, 14 years of uh, since the last peak, and a lot of the mines have either gone care and maintenance or gone out of business. And the world right now uh, consumes uh, a lot more than we produce. Uh, you know, I think for 2023, give or take five million in each direction, we're going to produce. We're going to consume about 185 million pounds, and we're going to produce around 150. And there's some questionability about that production number because a lot of it's a byproduct, uh, and we might go from underfeeding to overfeeding in terms of tail which means that the supply side may drop more, but just hold that 150 constant. And we're about a 35 million pound deficit each year. And, you know, we've been running a similar sort of deficit now for uh, four years. And at at some point, uh, they'll drain the warehouses. And then the price will have to go to a level where uh, it makes sense for people to restart a bunch of the shuttered mines. I mean, it's kind of one of those inevitable things. If if something's unsustainable, it's uh, eventually going to, you know, have an adjustment and the adjustment is that the price will have to go up and then the mines will come back on. And, uh, you know, normally when you have these rather opaque thin markets, uh, the price overshoots very dramatically. We saw this the last uranium cycle that I played and I feel pretty good. It'll happen again this cycle. The, the, the difference being that we have this entity called Sprott Physical Uranium Trust or SPUT and it keeps going out there buying pounds and sequestering them. And if I know anything about bull markets, if, uh, Uranium starts uh, moving and it makes a new high, you know, above like 62 or so where it kind of peaked out in Q1. I think a lot of retail traders and, you know, wise guys, hedge funds like myself are going to buy a bunch more. I mean, well, I have a full position. I won't be buying more, but uh, a bunch of other guys will. And what that'll do is it'll just put more money into the trust and they'll be chasing the price higher as they buy more pounds. And they'll just make the deficit more extreme and lead to the overshoot being more extreme. And so I have a very large position in this. And, you know, I, I think it's uh, a pretty low risk trade here from you know, the 48, 49 level of uh, physical uranium. Uh, and um, I don't know, I, I got in at 31. It's been good to me so far. I expected a bit more, but all these things take time. So that point is interesting about how the ETF could impact the underlying, right? So when, when GLD came out, there were some on the fringe arguments that, you know, as gold momentum picks up, GLD is going to get assets that will then kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But, you know, GLD relative to the gold market is nothing. It sounds like if you think about the size of the uranium market, the ETF for uranium, the Sprott Fund you mentioned, could have a much bigger impact than other ETF launches around underlying commodities. Well, I mean, gold uh, dramatically changed the, the dynamics of the gold market. Uh, if you look at when it launched, and then look out two years, it dramatically adjusted the price. Um, and I've seen this with Sprott. You know, when they announced that they were launching this trust, we bought uh, <laughs> we bought a few percent of the thing at uh, thirty one dollar reference price. And here we are nine months later, and it's uh, forty nine. I mean, that's that's like a seventy percent return. I've had better trades. I've had worse trades in my career, but it's it's not so bad given that uh, the overall market's down during that time and down quite a lot. 
Um, you know, it's already adjusting the price, um, and I think it'll accelerate it. But you know, Sprott's now sequestered almost forty million pounds uh, since uh, Sprott took over the vehicle. And so, when you look at that in the context of one hundred fifty million pounds of production, I mean, you look at it, almost thirty percent of uh, annual production disappearing, and you know, that that's definitely not sustainable. And things that aren't sustainable uh, will eventually, you know, adjust something. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's. You know, since it's so material to the the size of the market, it probably will eventually adjust the price, and probably at, at the extremes, it will uh, dramatically adjust the price as uh, retail comes in and just floods the market. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Presumably, the real catalyst for uranium has to really come from Europe and, in particular, Germany, right? To to get nuclear kind of back at the at the front of the conversation. Um, is there anything that you're seeing that suggests that there's maybe sort of imminent catalysts like that that countries are looking to restart uh, some of their plans to, from a longer term perspective, counter oil reliance on Russia? Um. Yeah, a bit here and there. I mean, the French have said that they want to uh, build more nuclear power plants. I mean, the Germans are now going to leave their last three plants going. Um, You know, I I think when you've uh, polluted people's brains as a politician and lied to people and created a a religion around uh, a hoax, uh, it's really hard to then say, yeah, yeah, we kind of got that one wrong. And so you're going to need elections and you need new politicians. And that's why these things always take time. And that's why uh, when the cycles swing, they tend to overshoot dramatically in both directions. And so I think it's just going to take time. But I don't think uh, the you know, uranium thesis is really based on uh, you know, any individual reactor staying on or getting shut. And you know, quite honestly, it takes a decade to build a reactor. It's, you know, that's not really within my investment timeline. My investment timeline is really predicated on the idea that if you consume 35 million pounds more than you produce each year, and then you have a spot out there on the, you know, the periphery consuming pounds. And you have other entities like Yellow Cake consuming pounds. And you have utilities that have drawn down inventory that might want to uh, you know, increase their inventory. And you have countries like China that uh, have committed to building a whole bunch of these reactors and you know, likely would want to have a strategic reserve of uranium as, you know, what's the point of having a reactor if you don't have uh, uranium? I just think you have uh, a lot of latent buying interest and a lot of... Uh, you know, just latent demand that's kind of off balance sheet that will be there over time. And, you know, my timeline in this is probably two years from here. Uh, you know, we, we see um, MacArthur River, we, we see, uh, you know, Paladin bringing Langer Heimlich on. You, you have a bunch of these uh, mines restarting. So, you know, it kind of has to happen by 24, at worst 25. But, you know, I, I kind of think you're going to have the, the two curves, uh, you know, cross and you're going to have some sort of crazy blow off move. And remember what I said, that that blow-off move will be accentuated by whatever uh, Sput and Yellowcake and some of the other entities do. Is there, um, I don't know, some historical spread relationship between 
oil and uranium that that suggests that you know it's oil moves uranium moves in a co- in a similar way I, I, i'm always curious about how code movements uh kind of develop on on that end i don't i don't think they're correlated i mean uh you know commodity cycles tend to be correlated because for instance if you look at oil oil is correlated with all the other uh potential uh products that either get used with oil or can be substituted for oil and what and you get these funny uh correlations say oil and rubber for instance which you know you would never expect but you know they can kind of be substituted in ways for tires but when it comes to uh, nuclear once you turn a reactor on it stays on basically for 40 years or maybe 50 if it gets an extension and you know use the same number of pounds each year and there really should be no correlation it really just comes down to, to simple supply and demand and it's a very consolidated market i mean you have a few dozen utilities that have nuclear power plants and you have about 10 mining companies that produce anything of any scale it's it's a really just small market all right so that's on the uh, on the bullish side um i'm curious your thoughts on uh, where is the market most vulnerable or maybe where is there still a lot of air to come out you can argue technology, arc, fang, but I you know, kind of feel like it's a little bit longer the tooth in terms of that relative decline. But talk about some of the areas that make you nervous here. Uh, I'm not terribly nervous. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I tend to think that, you know, the arc names, many of them eventually go to zero, but uh, the, the rate of decline probably stays about the same. I mean, you know, Carvana is down 90%, but it might drop 90% by Christmas still. Um, you know, these, these sort of things... Uh, and there'll be some vicious short uh, squeezes along the way. But I don't short, and I just don't have any view on these sort of things. Um, you know, like Peloton, like it probably won't exist in two years. It'll, someone will just have it in runoff in a private equity shop. Um, but, you know, I don't really have any edge in these sort of things, so I kind of leave them alone. Uh, I think touching consumer is going to get just annihilated because oil is going higher. And, you know, oil is going to drain everyone else's milkshake. And, uh, you know, consumer is a fixed cost business with high operating leverage. And when you start comping negative double digits, you know, your, your economics collapse. Um, so um, I, I think that's where I'd look. But look, the market's down 30 percent already, 25 percent. A lot of the things I look at, which is the smaller cap sort of companies, you know, the so-called value names, a lot of them are down 75 percent from the peak uh, in Q3 last year. I mean, a lot of these things trade at single-digit earnings multiples, even if you kind of abuse the earnings number. Uh, so I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about the stuff we own, and I'm not really concerned about the market. I, I think you know, the accidents are waiting to happen and the Fangnam sort of stuff where uh, you're going to see multiple compression, and I think it's going to be anything touching a consumer. You know, if there's a recession, uh, maybe demand goes up, maybe demand goes down. I mean, it, it's hard to even predict these sort of things. Uh, I'm not worried about the speculators selling. I mean, two weeks ago, they knocked oil for $10 in a day. Um, it just doesn't really matter what I'm doing. Uh, we own basically oil services stocks. Uh, you know, the only way we're going to get ourselves out of this crisis is just a whole lot more drilling and exploration. Uh, and that should be good for these guys' businesses. Uh, I mostly have offshore. And then, um, you know, I, I own uh, oil futures, futures options, and call options, and call spreads, and a bunch of butterflies and other, you know, structures I've built. Because um, I just think the price is going higher, and I'm not really very fixated on what happens this week or, you know, this month. A lot of it's pretty long-dated stuff. Uh, so, you know, I, I just don't really have anything to, to say on the, on the short term. And you know, I would look at what's happening in the Commitment of Traders report, and I'd look at what's happening in, the open interest of some of the ETFs like XOP or OIH or 
uh, USO, where you've seen really negligible buildup in uh, speculative demand. Uh, I mean, despite everyone saying that they think oil's overowned, and a couple of us on Twitter are probably being a little too boisterous and probably well overdue for a spanking. Uh, you know, uh, I don't feel like the rest of the market's long this stuff. If anything, the rest of the market's saying, you know, as soon as oil drops to 80, my stocks go up. I think that's everyone's hope and plan and you know, battle plan, you know. I just got to wait till oil goes back to 80 and then my stuff goes up. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's, that's almost a sense that they've uh, lost the narrative. So, I mean, two years ago when the Fed was uh, trying to fight germs with uh, monetary liquidity, um, I, I started joking that they had enacted uh, Project Zimbabwe. Um, and that was a bit tongue in cheek. I really hope we don't become Zimbabwe here. The, the guys around the Fed seem to see that as a role model. Um, but they just, you know, spread a bunch of liquidity everywhere and took rates to zero and, uh, everything went up and that's what happened in Zimbabwe. You know, anything with a Q-sip there went up. And my, my view is that we're almost in an, an inevitable sort of path higher in asset prices because the debt's too high and they're going to be forced to print, especially because with a two-year election cycle, no one's willing to take any pain. I mean, we're, this, we're almost in a weird moment in time right now because Biden's asking J-Pow to, uh, raise rates and create a recession so that uh, inflation stops. And Biden doesn't, I guess, realize that there's an election coming up in November. Uh, you know, it's like this weird moment in time where you, you have a senile idiot in charge and you might actually have a recession for once. But, um, you know, I just think there's no uh, willingness to take pain and the path of least resistance in a democracy is always just to print more money and postpone the election to the next cycle. Sorry, postpone the recession to the next election cycle. I kind of see us going along that path. And if you look at, you know, Weimar or Zimbabwe, maybe not Zimbabwe, but you look at Weimar, you look at some of these other classic uh, inflationary uh, bust-ups, uh, there's moments in time where sane people tried to stop uh, the inflation and they, they pulled back on liquidity, they, they pulled back on fiscal. I mean, we haven't really pulled back on fiscal, but maybe a little. But um, you know, and then the pain got too great and the only uh, solution was to print more money. And you know, they just uh, pivoted rapidly back to uh, money printing. And I think, you know, we're in one of those weird troughs in Project Zimbabwe where, you know, you have an almost preordained path uh, of inflation, yet uh, the, the government's kind of pulling back for a bit and hoping that they could fix it. And they're going to eventually hit the pain threshold and then uh, liquidity at it. And I just don't know when that pivot's going to be. But, you know, today, when you look at uh, euro dollar uh, 23s versus 22s, uh, euro dollar market's already pricing in a pivot sometime in the next year. Um, and so I, I think that's really interesting because, you know, it seems almost dumb to have a Federal Reserve. If, if you look at it, you know, Federal Reserve just tends to lag where the two-year goes. And so you could probably save uh, the U.S. government, you know, tens of billions of dollars by firing everyone at the Federal Reserve and just, you know, watching the two-year move around. <laughs> and so, um, sorry, it's long-winded, but I, I do think they're going to pivot. It's probably sometime in the, the fall or winter. And I think what actually gets them to pivot, what no one's really expecting, is that when oil blows off, uh, you know, the Walmarts of the world start crying and they're, they're almost forced to bail out the rest of the economy because oil's wrecking it. And so, you know, normally, well, for the last uh, you know, couple months, uh, J-Pow's been chasing the price of oil higher. But at some point, he's going to panic and literally have to flood the market with liquidity because of oil. Well, he's chasing oil higher because oil is so correlated to 
to inflation expectations, right? So, right. I mean, that, that you know, to, whether you're in oil or in tips, you know, it's all the same trait, right? It's, it's based on oil as the precursor. Yeah, sure. I mean, not financial advice. Uh, oil is meant for trading. Uh, oil services companies are highly cyclical. Uh, throughout the full cycle, they don't create a lot of value. Uh, oil producers themselves usually destroy value. Uh, these are meant for trading. They're, they're really not meant for owning. Um, and, you know, kind of, this isn't the sort of industry you put it away and forget about it. Um, you know, in terms of oil services, a bunch of them have been beat down in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, I, I own a ton of Valeris. Uh, it's the largest offshore drilling company. I think that uh, throughout this cycle, uh, offshore drilling, capital expenditure sees dramatic imp- increases just because all of the better basins that don't have regulatory and compliance problems tend to be offshore in countries that really need the dollars. And so you're looking at, you know, Guyana and Suriname and Brazil and West Africa, you know, Namibia just found a huge uh, resource that's quite impressive. I think you're going to find much more uh, offshore. And I, I would think that eventually at the end of the cycle, all the rigs that are still uh, cold stacked uh, end up operating and operating at crazy rates. I mean, there's very few things in this uh, global economy today that haven't taken out the highs in 2008. I mean, crude oil is one of the few that hasn't, and you know, rig rates haven't. Uh, you know, if, if they peaked out last time at six, seven hundred thousand, I mean, why can't we go to a million this cycle? And you know, it gives you a multi-bagger. But w- once again, these things are meant for trading; they're not meant for owning. Um, Appreciate yeah, that. And, and then you know, in terms of what I do, I mostly just own uh, long-dated futures, futures options, uh, call spreads. I mean, you don't have to invest a lot of money to control a lot of barrels of oil, right. and uh, that's just how I'm doing it. And you know, I don't trade these things. Quite honestly, the bid ask spreads are so wide; it'd be insane to trade them, especially when you own thousands of contracts. It's um, it's just a question of putting it on and letting it play out. And if I'm wrong, you know, I'll lose my premium, and you know, it'd, it'd be expensive. But life goes on. Let's talk about the trading for a moment, um, Harris. Everyone's got their own favorite set of indicators or tools to determine entry and exit points. I mean, you've got a, a theme, you've got a catalyst. How do you determine how to wait and how to trade around, you know, volatility? So I don't trade around volatility that much. Um, you know, I've been long oil. I, I had this thesis that ESG would create this Lehman sort of moment. And you know, I wrote about it in the fall last year. And, you know, in the spring last year, I got long oil producers because I saw what was happening on the demand side. And I saw a zero response on the supply side. You have to remember since, uh, 2014 and even earlier, you know, it was the oil producers that were their own enemy. I mean, they were just producing more oil into a glut. It made no sense. But, you know, they, they had uh, debt covenants and EBITDA covenants. They had to just keep producing, even if it you know, destroyed capital. And so, you know, if you had ESG and you had uh, Biden getting in the way of, you know, the, the producers, uh, you know, destroying their own capital or their shareholders' capital, you had this impediment to, you uh, what had held back uh, the price of oil for the last uh, decade. And so it just became obvious to me. And when something becomes obvious, you, you do a lot of work on it. You develop a thesis. You know, from there, obviously, how you express that view is usually more important than even the thesis itself. And then you know, I put it on. And th- for this one, I put it on as a pretty massive position. It was a position max just because I felt pretty confident in my view. And over time, I adjusted some stuff. You know, Valeris came out of bankruptcy. I thought the price was wrong. So I added some of that. And I sold some Sandridge, which had appreciated uh, like a 10-bagger. <laughs> um, 
you know, you move the, the book around a little bit, but, but for the most part, uh, I put a trade on and I leave it on, I ignore the volatility. Sometimes at the extremes, you know, on the way down, I'll write a few puts, say I get longer if I, you know, if I get assigned or I'll sell a few calls, you know, if it goes too high in the other direction, but we're talking a few percent around the book. I mean, the, the, the core of the theme is to put a uh, position max on or you know, whatever you want your size to be right at the point of inflection where you're taking the least amount of risk because if you get it wrong, you get your money back. I mean, if you're buying oil here at 110, if you get it wrong, you're not getting your money back. You're going to lose half. Um, so you, you have a very different uh, risk and reward profile here. doesn't mean it's not a great investment, but uh, you have a very different risk reward. So I wouldn't be you know, playing it here. I, I wouldn't be playing it last year when I was playing it. And then, you know, in terms of when to exit, you know, the, the, the market will tell you when to exit. If you start seeing a lot of money thrown at CapEx, you know that you have about a two-year window to get out. Uh, you know, if you see something dramatically change, you, you, you'll, you'll know. I mean, I, I famously made a, a six-bagger in Bitcoin. I bought it at 9200 because uh, Project Zimbabwe, and I know that Bitcoin does well with the Fed uh, floods the, money, the market with uh, liquidity. And I sold it when... Uh, porn stars started pumping shit coins. Um, you know, when you take financial advice from Mia Khalifa, it, it, it's time to get out. And suddenly my whole uh, Twitter feed was people retweeting stuff she was writing about Bitcoin. <laughs> I just said, this makes no sense. And you know, I sold mine at 58,000. I sold mine about six weeks before the top. Uh, you know, I missed out on the last 5,000, whatever. Um, I'm damn happy I sold it when I did, though. Um, and it's just funny how things like that work. But you know, there's a certain mass psychology to these sort of things, and you, the, the markets will tell you when to get out. Yeah, no, the, the point about the, the Bitcoin and, and celebrities, it's like, you know, Paris Hilton put laser eyes on, I think it was April of last year, um, and that was pretty damn close to the top, too. Um, I, I am curious your broader thoughts on uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, from a longer-term oh. perspective. Well, I think most of the cryptocurrencies that exist today have no reason that they should exist. They, de- they, they tend to not solve a problem. It's a solution to a non-problem, often involving two other currencies that are trying to solve non-problems. The whole thing's a giant Ponzi scheme. Um, it's, it's insane how much capital has gotten uh, tied up in this thing and how many truly smart people uh, focus their energy on grifting instead of doing something productive. Um, you know, in terms of the, the, the core uh, coins, you know, I have a feeling that we'll be using Bitcoin in some way in financial transactions 10 years from now. Uh, it probably uh, happens at a higher price, uh, not so much because Bitcoin's this great uh, invention. Well, actually, it is. But, um, but not, not just because of Bitcoin, more a function of the Federal Reserve printing a ton of money. I mean, you buy Bitcoin. Uh, if you look at the history of Federal Reserve cycles, they basically overstimulate on the way up because everyone's cheering them on. It's a lot of fun to create jobs and be heroes. And then eventually they panic over inflation, they over-tighten, they break stuff, and then they overstimulate again to fix their own mistake. Like I said, if you follow the two-year with like a six-month lag, you're the Federal Reserve. Um, and so, um, you know, when they break stuff, I'm going to probably buy some Bitcoin uh, with, with the full confidence that they're going to overstimulate and flood the market with liquidity again. Uh, but that's probably, you know, six months, a year in the future, w- w- whatever. You, you, once again, the market will tell you when it's time. And I think Bitcoin's going lower before it goes higher. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm not going to tell you I'm a crypto expert, but I, I think 99.9% of these things won't exist. Sure. Uh, in terms of Bitcoin, I think it's going lower. Uh, the Federal Reserve is draining liquidity. 
when they drain liquidity, Bitcoin goes down. Like it's uh, <laughs> that very simple physics equation with very high correlation. Uh, no, I think Bitcoin's going much lower. Uh, I don't know if that means 5,000 or 10,000. I, I don't know. I mean, I have no position either way. Um, so I, I don't really know. I just think it's going lower because they've told you they intend to break stuff. And uh, they have a long history of breaking stuff. And I take them at their word that they're going to break stuff. Um, and Bitcoin is highly levered uh, beta stuff that they break. Um, in, in terms of uh, the rest of the market, they've told you they're going to break stuff. I assume they'll succeed at breaking stuff. <laughs> and yeah, I think the rest of the market goes down too. You know, with every oversold, sentiment's just abysmal right now. Uh, I feel like we're overdue for something of a bounce. I'm not really playing it, but I, I can see us, you know, having a bounce this summer. And, you know, the real selling starts in the fall. Um, you know, I feel like guys are still trying to buy bottoms here and they're not really, uh, you haven't seen the flush yet. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't really try to focus on bear markets and finding bottoms in bear markets. I, I really try to focus on bull markets and riding bull markets. And, you know, even when Bitcoin does bottom, I'm going to wait for it to build a base and a bottom and a definable, you know, entry point. You know, Bitcoin is it's a chart. That's it. It's, it's, a, it's an arbitrary price and driven by human emotion. And so the, let the human emotion write me a chart that I know where to get in and get out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not bottom fishing that. God, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you, do you do any work, Harris, on um, looking at credit spreads or looking at the bond market? to help you decide what to allocate to, because, you know, that's been part of the, the frustration this year, as we know, is that, you know, 60, 40 has not exactly been a diversified portfolio. Well, I mean, I wrote an article last year saying 60, 40 was going to blow you up. Um, you know, it, it seemed pretty obvious 60, 40 works during deflation and it, it destroys capital during inflation. And, uh, you know, I was pretty clear that a lot of the big uh, purveyors of 60, 40, especially the leveraged ones are going to go bankrupt. And it seems to be playing out like I expected. I mean, go, if you want to <laughs> see some of my predictions, go to my blog at Adventures in Capitalism. Uh, but um, you know, in terms of credit spreads, I don't really track that. I mean, I don't really track the bond market. I mean, a lot of these things are so over-manipulated these days. You know, the Federal Reserve sets the price on any, you know, QCIP they want. And you, know, you have like five funds that own most of the corporate bonds and you know, at least the investment grade stuff. Like I just... It, I just don't think it's as useful as an indicator as it used to be. And so I haven't really spent much time on that. But once again, you know, I'm not looking at things that are in bear markets. I'm really in trying to buy bottoms. That's, that's how you lose a lot of money. I'm focused on bull markets. I mean, energy, uranium. I think U.S. housing is in a raging bull market, though we're in something of an intermission there. Um, I'm, I'm focused on bull markets. All right. So let's let's talk about housing because we haven't touched on that because I think there's a, a growing drumbeat around the idea that housing is going to decelerate or maybe even outright see some see some declines. But you're saying you're still bullish on housing. So maybe kind of lay out the the argument for uh, property for real estate as an investment. Well, if you look at hyperinflationary cycles, um, and I don't think we're going to go quite hyperinflationary, but we're going to do double digits inflation for a very long period of time. Um you know, real estate tends to be a great way to preserve wealth, uh, often better than stocks. And uh, your average middle-class guy just got burnt in stocks. He's going to go buy a house uh, or buy a second house or a fifth house because there's always a government program that's designed to subsidize the purchase of a home, especially a new one, as opposed to an existing property. And uh, you can finance this thing even today at 5%, and it's appreciating at 15% or whatever the number is right now. 
And uh, let's just use round numbers and go with my example. So you're making a thousand bips uh, spread. You're putting five turns of debt on this. You're making 50% on your equity. Um, and then you get a little bit of yield because you have a tenant in there or whatever else. And I mean, why wouldn't you want to make 50% on your money each year when you know, inflation is running at 15? Uh, so I think people are going to just keep plowing their money into real estate much like they have. And as it starts working better, and it's been working quite well, um, I think you're going to see this all accelerate, especially as the stock market kind of uh, destroys people that were buying uh, you know, Ponzi stocks and uh, you know, SaaS crap and all this other stuff and realize they have no idea what they're doing, but they know how to buy a three-bedroom uh, house uh, in their neighborhood. So I just think you're going to continue to see demand. Um, you have a massive demographic trend. Uh, you know, the baby the boomers had the millennials and the millennials held off having kids for a decade. And now they're all having kids and moving to the suburbs. You have a huge migration. It's almost like a refugee crisis of uh, upper middle class and wealthy that are leaving the high uh, tax uh, states, you know, the Northeast, uh, Illinois, uh, California. And they're all, you know, fleeing to Florida and Texas and Tennessee. And you have these huge building booms there. And I think people are getting caught up in this idea that you look at national statistics and national statistics, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of rolling over. I, I get it. And then when you look at it on a regional basis, uh, some of the regions are just white hot and some of the regions just completely suck. And, you know, I, I think people have lost uh, the narrative here because they're lazy and they look at national data. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to bet on the price of homes because I think that's, you know, hard to, to play. And I, I don't have a great view because if they take rates too high, the price of homes will drop. Uh, but I have this view that these refugees need to put a roof over their head and uh, the demand for homes will stay elevated. Uh, and I'm not you know, setting an exact number, but it, it had been between six and 800,000 for a decade. I think we'll stay above a million. And if you stay above a million, companies that I own like Builders First Source or Louisiana Pacific, uh, you know, the supply into the, the housing trades, I think they'll do phenomenally well. And they have very, very high ter- returns on capital. They uh, have unique products. They're almost monopoly businesses at this point due to consolidation. And uh, I think the price of lumber stays high. I mean, everyone's talking recession, but lumber is over 600. Uh, this is a historically high price for any moment in time, uh, unless you're looking at 2021. And so um, I just tend to think these businesses earn uh, very, very high returns on capital, and you can buy them at three and four times earnings. And when you have a business that's growing 10 to 15% a year at three times earnings that has a or better return on capital, uh, you close your eyes and you buy it because uh, that's like a world-class, you know, top 1 percentile sort of business. That's better economics than a lot of the SaaS companies. And uh, it's amazing that they're they're priced where they are. And usually they're priced like that because there's some fatal flaw. And I think the fatal flaw, if I get it wrong, is that demand drops from a million two to 900,000. And it turns out I paid six times earnings. Like, you know, I just think, you know, either way, I'm going to make a ton of money. So that's how I'm playing my housing. Uh, I think that's, you know, the, the lower risk way to play housing than buying some of the home builders and betting on, you know, the gross margins of the home builders or the sell-through or any of these other metrics that are hard to predict. And, you know, home building is a pretty mediocre 20% return on capital business anyway. If you're going to own something for a cycle, you want to go up a uh, market in terms of return on capital. Other than uh, uh, oil, home builders, uranium, is there anything else that's maybe grabbing your attention that's maybe starting to look interesting as a new theme? I mean, obviously, you don't get too cute right? as far as you know, constantly switching up allocations, but is there anything that's kind of uh, getting your attention more recently? 
Well, I don't switch allocations very much. I tend to put something on and let it play out unless, you know, it either plays out and I get paid or eventually uh, you realize why your thesis was wrong, <laughs> you know? And sometimes these play out slower than you expect, but, you know, you, you stay with it because it's working. And I think one in that regard is uh, there's been a dramatic trends, uh, transition of newspaper companies that had been just really terrible businesses for the last 20 years as uh you know, the newspaper companies, they're, they're run by journalists. They're not run by business people. Uh, they're, they're still not run by business people. Uh, but they were literally giving the content away for free on their website and then charging people 50 bucks a month for the print copy. It made no sense. They were competing with themselves. It was the dumbest business model I ever heard. And, you know, it's not surprising that their revenues were declining 10% a year for like 20 years in a row. Uh, but they finally, you know, New York Times kind of the first to crack the code of, you know, you, you know improving the technology, using an app instead of the website, uh, you know, getting people to actually pay you $10 a month to access content and then you know, targeting the advertising. And the New York Times is obviously a decade ahead of the cycle compared to a bunch of these other guys, but everyone else is figuring it out too. And you have these businesses that are digital native businesses that are growing 30 to 100% a year. And uh, they're, they're at 95, 98 incremental gross margins. And uh, they're just growing fast. Meanwhile, the print business is uh, slowly declining. The decline rates have kind of uh, leveled out at between you know one and five percent a year. And so, as uh, digital got to be more than thirty percent of the business, suddenly the whole enterprise is growing, but it's growing at a much higher return on capital and much higher gross margin. And uh, you know, I, I got into these all when they I have a basket of them. I probably shouldn't name any names, but I, I got into these uh, right um, when uh, revenue started growing across the enterprise because digital is growing so fast and you know it got to be a big enough piece of the business that it, it kind of hid the decline of print. And you know, my expectation is print probably doesn't exist in five or 10 years for most of these companies. They'll be digital native businesses, probably with a you know, revenue stream that's roughly where we are today. Uh, but you know, uh, if you run a print facility, you have you know, dozens of people, you're chopping down trees, you're putting ink on it, you're printing it, you got to deliver it at five in the morning. It's just like this terrible capital-intensive, people-intensive, low-margin business. And, you know, as they make this transition, the returns on capital will explode. If you look in the 1970s, everyone has this funny chart showing you the best-performing assets in the 1970s. It always shows like gold and oil and real estate as being the things you're supposed to own. And I don't know why the chart doesn't show it, but newspaper was the best-performing asset. Uh, you have monopoly businesses with price power. And during inflation, uh, you know, the velocity of things move around, which means that people spend more money on advertising. Um, you know, newspapers, because of that pricing power, the ability just to raise the subscription price 25% every year, um, it actually was the best performing asset, especially because a lot of them had a fixed rate debt that was you know, highly levered businesses with fixed rate debt. Um, and I, I think, you know, if you want to make money and you think uh, the, the 2020s look like the 1970s, you just buy the thing that did the best back then. So now I own a bunch of newspapers. Uh, you know, it's, it had been working for me uh, in Q3, Q4, Q1. A bunch of them kind of pulled back lately in Q2. People are worried about the GDP, the economy. And that, that's fine, you know. Advertising rates will fluctuate quarter to quarter based on the economy. I'm really focused on those subscription revenue dollars. And those subscription revenue dollars are, you know, just going parabolic. And I, I think it's crazy you can buy rapidly growing digital native businesses where you're talking about 40% of revenue, let's say, but 75% of EBITDA being digitally native, you can buy it at two times cash flow. It just seems crazy. So that's another place I own a lot. And that, that, that one, you know, the trend's working, but not the stock price.
I mean, for the last uh, few minutes here and everybody that's here, please make sure you follow it, Harris uh, up top and hopefully follow me as I keep doing these spaces. Um, since the point was brought up earlier that you're very good at eviscerating narratives and I tend to be, I think of a similar, uh, type of, type of way of looking at, uh, stories. Um, what narrative is the biggest bullshit <laughs> today? There's a lot of them, but what's something that to you is like, you listen to it and be like, you know, that's just obviously wrong. Like everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm as cynical as it gets when it comes to narratives and categorization but uh there's got to be something that for you maybe is really uh really kind of outlandish just just everything I, I feel like you know there was a time i mean look uh i think there's always been like propaganda and you know the media is controlled by wealthy people and politicians and they kind of do their bidding and try to dress up uh stories to make them seem real and they're they used to be like 10 percent uh you know evasion of the truth and you know you, you try to spin some crook to make him look less crooked <laughs> you know but it, you, 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 you keep a balanced uh, center to the whole thing and now you, you just read these articles and there's no bearing whatsoever on what's happening in the real world and it, and this isn't just like a left or versus right this is just like a, a truth versus uh lies sort of thing and i, I think they really think we're just that dumb uh and I think that also creates a lot of opportunity because, you know, the vast majority of people aren't very smart. And that means like, you know, half of them are stupider than the average guy. So, uh, you know, that just creates a lot of opportunity for guys like us that are willing to think stuff through. No, no. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's always good to be skeptical of, of narratives and narratives always follow price. Right. So it's always after the fact that you, you see what the story and the reason is, uh, the key is to have the imagination to figure out what the next narrative is going to be. I think that's sort of the uh, the proper way to frame it. Uh, everybody's here at the top of the hour. Uh, special thanks to Harris Koopman as the uh, guest of the hour. Hopefully worth uh, the conversation, the time here. Again, I will have this as an edited YouTube video probably in a week or so. Uh, Harris, right. first time you and I are talking, uh, you know, I, I largely stayed quiet, but there's a lot that you said that I agree with. And I think we, uh, like I said, share the, the common sarcastic uh, view of, of this business. So uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon. And thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, hey, uh, let yep. me just, but before we hop, I you know, appreciate you having me on. I just kind of want to plug, uh, if you want to follow me, uh, you know, go to Adventures in Capitalism, which is my blog. Uh, it's free. You get what you pay for, which you know, may not be much value. And uh, go to KEDM.com and take a free trial. We're offering one-month free trials at the Event Driven uh, Monitor. It's dramatically changed how I identify opportunities and I write usually a few pages of macro and themes and ideas each week as well. So got to get my infomercial in. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. No, very good. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com.
Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.